Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Shervin Takyar. I've had him before. He's a great guest. Uh, he's an associate professor, part of the Yale School of Medicine, and he's going to be uh, helping me out with the uh, cancer book I'm putting together. So, Shervin, thanks for coming back. Thank you for, for inviting me back. Yeah, well, for listeners that don't know you, uh, tell me a bit about your background and in particular your work on cancer, and then we'll, we'll get into the questions. Sure. So my background is uh, I work on RNA biochemistry and biology. And I'm also a pulmonologist. I'm a practicing pulmonologist. So I see pulmonary patients, uh, COPD patients. Also, I'm in intensive care and uh, see lung injury patients. And so that's the two main things that I do, basic science and clinical science or clinical medicine, rather. The work that we do in cancer, I think I think of it as a, a logical progression of what we do in lung disease. One of the most fatal lung diseases lung cancer. And um, I think I look at lung cancer as a consequence of injury and disease in the lung. And I think most people agree with, with me that, that an injury will, or process after injury would lead to cancer. So that's how we got into it. We, and I specifically work on endothelium, which is now part of, we all know, as a, as a very important part of tumor microenvironment. And that's okay. how I got into it. Yeah. Well, very good. So what do you think uh, causes cancer? You know, well, we could focus on lung cancer since that's what you focus on, but what are some of the reasons or the causes of lung cancer in your mind? I guess there's viral vectors, maybe there's bacterial vectors, there's physical damage. Like how would you characterize the various ways that cancer can arise? Yeah, I think it's uh, a combination of things, the combination of reagents of agents and with the help, with some help from the body, from the tissue, from different cells in the tissue. I think cancer, you know, it takes, it takes a whole team to cause cancer. It's not, I don't think any single agent. I mean, there are, there are instances where you see a specific agent or virus like HPV, we all, we all have heard that increases the risk of cancer a lot. Again, it's not that everybody who gets that virus gets the cancer. Again, it's an interaction. So let me just say that in the beginning, I don't think anybody would ever find a single agent causing cancer, particularly in lung cancer. It's an accumulation of things. And what I am mostly focusing on is before cancer. And I'm very, I'm very glad that you asked the question this way. What is the cause of cancer? Uh, the majority of research in cancer is happening now in what should we do after the cancer happened. And as a pulmonologist, I like the question uh, the other way. What can we do before the cancer happened? Like, what is it? What is that event? What are those events that predispose an individual to cancer? And then even beyond that, 
if this individual, if this patient had the cancer removed, who are the people who will have a recurrence of, of that cancer? Who are the people who will have resistance right. to agents? So I think, I think these questions are all extensions. Of, I think at least in the instances that I've seen in the lung or similar cancers in the upper airway, there is always a process of injury. So that's how I am coming into, into, into it. There is an injury of some sort. And this injury, the response to this injury can increase the risk of a mistake. And that mistake is the, is the start of cancer. Why, why so would maybe, a, a mistake turn into a deliberate kind of parallel evolution, you know, where cancer takes on, it grows and it recruits blood vessels and it seems to be like a, a separate organism that has its own homeostatic drive. Like, why do you think a mistake would translate all of a sudden into like a new organism, essentially, that has its own goals that are conflicting with our body? So that's a very interesting question, depending on how this mistake happens. And and we may be looking at a very evolved mistake. It's we, are, we may be looking at one of many, 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 many mistakes that had the chance to survive. So I think maybe we should put that in that context, that injury happened. There are a lot of risk responses. There are a lot of ways that cells are trying to get out of that phenotype, out of that blockade, blockage, maybe if you, if you want to call it. It's after, in the, from that injured state, from that injured, they want to get out of that, that state. One of that, one of the ways is by, pro, by proliferation. Now, of course, if you have injury, you don't have all the machinery and the cell can die or can survive by proliferating and making a clone. Now, for all we know, a lot of this, these instances may happen, and then one of them can survive. One of them can survive the conditions. One of them can survive the, uh, the surveillance of immune cells. One of them can bring endothelium over, can do all of these, these, these things. And that may be the product of cycles of, of uh, selection. So I think it is not that it suddenly happened. I completely agree with you, except for that, for that one part. It is not, it may not be sudden at all from what, it may be that it just different patterns are presented to the environment and then the environment will choose one route or one of them can escape all the hazards of that environment and become cancer. How do you think literally though cancer first starts? Like, what do you think is the first ability that a cell would get? Is it to grow? uncontrolled? Is it to evade the immune system? Is it to, I mean, what, you know, like cancer seems to have a set of abilities that's common to, you know, to cancer, but what do you think happens first and then next and next and next? Yeah. So I think the first link is survival to, to proliferation. I think it is just that it is probably close to that part survival to, to proliferation. A cell gets injured and a set of events would lead to death and necrosis. Instead of events would lead to survival. Now, the survival, the same pathways that are going towards survival can lead to proliferation. And that is a subject of a lot of, re- I mean, a good amount of research on that. Unfortunately, not, that's not a major funded theme in cancer research. Now, as I said, most of the cancer research is on after the tumor has developed, but the overwhelming majority of people think that that is a survival to proliferation. Proliferation will, brings a cl- will bring a clone that has this kind of superior uh, cap- capabilities to, to survive and grow. 
And that's where cancer happens. Now, when you say injury, what, what do you mean by injury? Like if I punch you in the arm, your arm is not going to get cancer, you know, or if like you fall and bang your knee, you're not going to get knee cancer. But what, when you say injury, like what kind of injury? You mean physical injury and where and how? And like, how would you? Yeah. So, I mean, the pattern that we have now, it is not that we don't exactly know about trauma and how trauma, like you, you were talking about physical trauma, uh, how that links to some cancers. I don't want to go there. It's not my field. There are things that does repeated trauma may actually lead to cancer. But uh, what I'm talking about is mostly about smoking. The most common risk factor for, can- for lung cancer is smoking. And smoking causes a lot of injury in, in the lung. So a lot of material in, in, in cigarette smoke injures the lung. And that's the effect that we can measure and we can see. Now, a lot of cells will die. And then among the people among the, and among the cells that are exposed to this injurious agent, some will, will proliferate and become cancerous. So the injury that, when I talk about injury, I'm a pulmonologist, I'm talking about lung, lung injury. I'm talking about things that affect your lung. Most prominent example is cigarette smoke. Smoke injures the lung. But as you know, all the smokers, not all the smokers develop cancer. However, clinically, when we want to look at patients, the only thing, the only right right now, after years and years and years of, of research, if you ask the clinicians, who would you do a CT scan on to screen for cancer? It is only age and smoking. These are the only factors that are universally recognized as risks for lung cancer. Perhaps in yeah. non-smokers getting lung cancer, though, is on the rise. Why would they yes. get it? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Compared to before, yes, we, we, are, we are getting more non-smokers. Now, that is a little bit of a complicated question because there are non-smokers who are exposed to smoke, secondhand smoke, different types of smoke. That's one of the main group of, pa- of patients that I see in clinic. Oh, here I am. I haven't smoked. Why is my lungs? Why are my lungs not functioning? Uh, yes, yes, yesterday I had a patient. Why do I have this disease? And I suddenly realized that my patient is has fire firewood has a fireplace that is, is going on the whole day and night and he's sleeping there and he wakes up short of breath we know that that's a risk risk factor for, for injury to the lung and COPD so it's complex there are people in that group of patients non-smokers who are exposed and there are people who we cannot recognize that exposure easily um, in that group there are people again I said these are not majority we are talking about a smaller number number of patients. There is a group that, uh, for instance, uh, have a response to uh, some cytokines. They have an increased risk response to EGF or EGFR. They have 
mutations in that path pathway. So that group of people, non non smokers, is even more complex. They're not just one group. They're a different group of people there. But the one that is in front of us, right here, is what's in front of us. You smoke. We know you definitely injure your lung. Anybody who's who's, and we see that this is the most common cause of cancer. The only factor that you will that we will screen based on clinically. Where do people get lung cancer? Um, meaning the surfaces of the lung that are exposed to the air, you know, the bronchus, the bronchioles, the alveoli, etc. Is that where it happens first, or is it on the surface that is interior to our body? You know, where um, air has to diffuse through, you know, membranes and all that to get to the quote unquote inside of our lungs. Like, where does it happen on the outside, sure. the exposed air surface, uh, or the inside? So, so there are different types of cancer based on their pathology, and the answer is all of the, the above. Uh, so, we have a squamous cell. We have, uh, I mean, so so there are different cells in the in the lung that can get cancer. And the, the prevalence of different types is changing a little bit. Uh, most of the cancer is periphery and in the alveoli or, or air sacs. Most of them are starting from there. And in terms of, of exposure, everywhere is exposed. Our lungs are, expo- are exposed. Our lungs are the most exposed part of our body. We are, we are using our lungs and air sacs and airways to get air uh, more than anything else. So they are even more exposed than your skin because you have this flow of air every minute and you filter it. So yeah, so all of those, all of the above, uh, they can get cancer, but most commonly it's in the periphery and then starts from, from there. And of course it can change and go to other places too. Okay, so it's uh, most of it happens on the side that is exposed to air and not on yes. the interior side? Yeah, so I, if, you, if you're talking about the epithelium versus interstitium, that's what we call it interstitium, the, the tissue between, between the cells rather than the outside. Yes, most of, most of the cancer like, starts at the outside, at the epithelium that is facing. Okay. Is there, um, does lung cancer tend to happen in one lung or another, or does it happen in both lungs at the same time? So that's also uh, a subject of, of research. Uh, it's called syn- synchronous or, or metachronous. So there are people who get cancer at multiple sites. Again, not many. Most patients have it one site, but there are people who can get cancer in two, three sites at the same time. And those are a specific and very interesting group of patients. Uh, they have higher risk, of course. Uh, but the majority, it seems like it's, in one place, and then spread. You know, like in the in the heart, the left ventricle, like I guess, is more muscular than the right. Are the lungs any different on people, or are they pretty uniform between people? Or do people have a uh, one lung that's bigger or stronger? Or if you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You know, when they your right lung, right lung is bigger than left lung. Maybe just because the left side of the chest contains the heart and heart takes space so uh, the right lung gets more perf- perfusion gets more of the blood and it's bigger yes than the than the left lung yes do people tend to get cancer in their left or their right lung more as uh, that, that is not very clear uh, it's not i can i can it's not like solid data that it's more in the right or the left uh, because you know it's it's a little hard to and it may be out there i just don't don't know that it may be okay there is more when, tissue when, on the left side when people have multiple tumor sites, 
I, I guess, uh, do you consider it a metastasis if they develop a second tumor in a lung? Or is it only when it goes to a new organ? This was the question I was struggling with maybe 10 years ago or a little bit more. Because, and, and we are still struggling with that. Because the two options in, the, in that question can be very different, right? If a patient has developed cancer in one place and that has metastasized to the, to the second place, then that's an advanced cancer. That's metastasis. That the stage is a lot higher than a patient who has developed two tumors at two places at the same stage, right? So people have been trying, to, and of course, in the first group, you will probably just do chemotherapy. In the second group, you can potentially take both of the tumors out. And that question has developed. And, and recently, there are papers about how to deal with this dilemma. But I tell you that since that, that time, maybe 10, 15 years ago, one of the questions, one of the answers to this question, people thought, would come from looking at the patterns of gene expression, looking at the identities of the two tumors and see how close they are. If they are very similar, then it's very possible that they are the same, like, you know, they are the same tumor, it's just metastasized. And vice versa, if they are different, they may be two different tumors at the same time they're synchronous, and to take both of them out. So now, after all this this time recently, what has come up in the field is that people have tried to take out tumors that are spread, but or, or seems like they're spread, but not extensive. Let's say, so we have been doing that at Yale and some other places also. For instance, for years, people knew that if you have one tumor site in the lung, and one metastasis size in the brain, there is one small metastasis in the brain, you may be able to take both of them out and the patient will survive better, right? Whereas as you probably know, okay. in metastasis, you don't do that. If, if a patient has a metastatic tumor, that's stage four and beyond and only chemotherapy will, would. Recently, it has been shown that if you treat that cancer, for instance, with radiotherapy, that other tumor in a group of patients, even if, if, I mean, there are some research showing, even if there are like two and you treat them somehow in a type of patients who have less, you know, have only three or have only four sites, you treat all four somehow, surgery, radiotherapy, local, local therapy, seems like patient will do better, right? So that's the evolution of that question. Well, actually, there's, uh, there's, I guess mm -hmm. there's probably three different ways. So one is like, there's a primary tumor in a lung. Two mm -hmm. is there's a primary and then another site in the same lung. Three mm -hmm. is the primary in one lung and, a, and another site in the other lung. Four is like primary in a lung or both lungs and then a, a site in the brain or some other organ. So like, has anyone yes. looked at those four different scenarios to see which is more likely and what, what's noticed as the difference between those four scenarios? Yeah. So these, these scenarios you're talking about, they're all parts of, parts of staging for lung, lung cancer. So we stage based on that. Stage one, two, but what, three, but four. What's been, what's been, like, what's the likelihood of these four things happening, you know, or some like very unlikely? And what does that tell you of so? So right now, when you have tumor in one side, most of the time, most of the time, when you have tumor in one side and tumor in the other side, right now, still, we call it metastatic tumor and we give it a higher stage, right? So this research that I'm telling you that is coming about and here and there people are doing trials on is a new thing and really defining who in that group will uh, benefit more from the, the eradication therapy. Let's call it eradication therapy. 
is not entirely clear yet. This is some something that people have gotten onto just just recently. But the uh, different scenarios that you talked about, they're all considered in the staging for lung cancer. Well, I know they're all considered in the staging, but which ones, I guess I'll put it another way. What does lung cancer seem to have a tropism for most? Is it brain? Is it other lung? Is it liver? And why? The answer to that question is a little hard. It goes to different places. It is more, it seems like it's more adjacent. It's more around this, the same tumor in the, in, in the lung, but it does go to other places. Brain and liver is, are one of the sites. And pleura, of course, is around this, is, is around, it goes to bone also. But these are the most common sites. Any idea why? Okay, so there is this whole theory called seed and soil, seed and soil hypothesis. The seed being a metastatic uh, tumor cell that is released in the blood, and then uh, soil being the tissue. The answer to a question is not entirely. These, are, I mean, you're, a, you're asking very good questions. There are, there are tissues that are more, uh, responsive to a tumor cell than others. And that's one of the clues that we got for the importance of tumor micromolecular environment. And that's what I, where I started from. I said, it takes a team. It takes a village, right? It takes a village to, for a tumor to survive. The tissue has to be susceptible. Now, for instance, why you have a metastatic a lung cancer tumors in brain and not in pancreas? Why do you have it right. in in the bone more than cartilage? Uh, these are all very good questions. There are tissue factors that that affect this for sure, but we don't entirely know. And then why why some why one patient get it in the bone and the other one doesn't? And you look at the, the two tumors and they're exactly the, the same. It's as far as we can tell. But that's the seed and soil. So there are changes in the tissue that is accepting the tumor that affects this. Uh, there are a lot of work has been, there are some work has been done in metastasis. It uh, seems like, for instance, vasc- vascularity has something to do with it, but it's much more complicated than that. It's not just the amount of vasc- vasc- vasculature. It, it gets again into the work that we talked about last time about the codes, about the languages of, of cells. What can they accept? It seems like endothelial cells and vasc- vasculature have, have a, has a lot to do with it. And that's one of the reasons why I do this research. I'm, a, I'm focused on endothelium, but I think one of those, those codes is, is in the endothelium. Uh, that was the basis of the work that we published a couple of years, years ago. We showed that when we change a microRNA only in the endothelial cells, only in a, not in the tumor, we can stop the tumor growth. It sounds like what you're saying is, um, in addition to physical injury, a disruption in cell-to-cell signaling you know, is a, is a is a big reason for cancer. So that could be like a different packaging of extracellular vesicles that are communicating something different, or you know, surface membrane receptor expression changes, or MHC changes across the immune system. I mean, I guess yes. all the ways of you know, there are channel arrangements and all that. Uh, there, you know, their polarity, all that stuff uh, would govern whether cancer forms or not. Absolutely. So it is injury is one of the initiating events, right? And then, as I said, response to this injury. Now, the response, the type of res- response is not limited to one cell type. And that is the bigger message, that it is not just that one cell that become cancerous. It is the cells around it. Now, a very famous one that we know about and has been used in therapy now is the response or lack of response of the immune cells to a tumor. 
right? This whole anti-PD-1 that is so famous, you see ads ads about on the TV every night, is about a a type of conversation or a lack of conversation between immune cells or lack of recognition by immune cells of a tumor cell, of a malignant cell, and they let it grow rather than doing their job and taking it out. So here is a conversation between two, two cell types. In a normal state, immune cell will come, see a malignant cell, which is out of line, and take it out. In a tumor, we see that when you isolate immune cells from a tumor, those immune cells are not doing their job. They are changed. One of the pathways that causes that tolerance or lack of response is PD-1. The anti-PD-1 is activating that, that pathway, is basically telling the the T cells that, hey, here, just activate, just work, do your, do your normal work. And they come and take out the tumor cell. So here's a, an example of a conversation gone wrong. Part that I work on is a conversation between the endothelial cells and the tumor cell. I think a lot of other people have shown that endothelial cells help tumor cells grow. Also, the part, the part they play in metastasis, that your other, your other question is very clear that they, the tumor cells propagate and go around the body and, and lodge in different places through the vascular endothelium. So recently, there is for the last five, six, maybe even more, uh, maybe 10, 10 years, there is this whole conversation, this whole talk about endothelial cells getting a kind of a cancerous phenotype. Even the endothelial cells are becoming cancer-like. They are growing more. They are responding more to, to certain cytokines or signalings. But yeah, it is a disrupted way of communication. And yes, vesicles is part, part, part of it. Extracellular vesicles are part of it. They're, they're part of that conversation. So yes, I would say all of the above. Uh, things happen like like that in a community, a community gone wrong. Yeah. If you look at a, a cancer and it's, there's just one cell versus 10 versus 100, 1,000, 100,000, a million, at what point does cancer seem to uh, act as a unified whole, you know, recruiting blood vessels, avoiding the immune system, et cetera, metastasizing? Like, at what, how many cancer cells does it take for a cancer to act as a uh, as a separate entity on its own, or do you think it happens from the very beginning with, uh, with a single cell? The reason I ask is some people say, oh, the cells just are kind of every man for themselves, but it doesn't seem like it. You know, why would tumors yeah. form with a structure? And why would yeah. they do all these things otherwise, you know? Now, as far as we know, I don't have a specific number for you. I'm not sure if anybody does. But as far as we know, the behavior that we see in cancers is clonal prolif- prolif- proliferation. You see a clone. These are cells that proliferate. Now, you may see a number of clones, or if you suppress one clone, then another clone may, t- may take, take over, but cells are cloned. It's not a single. So the properties probably exist in a, each and every cell. That's why they're, they're clones. But part of that property is proliferation, right? It's making more of yourself, and then the clone becomes a cancer. Or, or behaves as, as a cancer. I would not say becomes a cancer. I think the property of becoming cancerous exists in every cell. But, you know, it's more of a philosophical argu- argument. There are clones. So each cell is part of a clone. They all have the same ab- ability. Okay, so a, a tumor of one cell or two cells versus a billion, what do you think the differences are in terms of uh, coordination and action? Anything? Or it's just 
I mean, do you think there's just emergent properties because of the number of cells involved, or do you think there's a threshold that gets crossed where the tumor behavior now changes? I'm not sure about. I mean, so so clonal means they all have this the, cap- the capability, but we are getting into like organization, tissue organization, or how they do. Like for instance, we know that when tumors grow, the inside of the tumor, the center of the tumor becomes more ne- necrotic, more cells die in. The- in the inside. And the reason is that the tumor doesn't have a correct tissue organization. So for instance, blood vessels in a, in a tumor cannot form correctly. They cannot send blood to the center of a tumor. So cells inside the tumors are going to die, right? And this is one of the major differences between a tumor and an organ. An organ gets bigger to a certain degree and has vascularity at every single level and every single cell is receiving enough blood and everything. In tumor, that is not the case. Tumors grow and the interior of the, of the tumor becomes ne- necrotic and cells die. Well, I thought that it just became why. hypoxic and then anoxic. Exactly. But, uh-huh. but the cells live, I thought they just they just uh, turn to a different, you know, I guess they ferment instead of ox- using oxphos, but they survive. They do. They do. They are different zones. They're different zones. Some cells inside of the tumor are necrotic and die. There is a zone which is probably one of the most active evolutionary sites <laughs> on planet Earth is that middle zone where blood is scanned or oxygen is scanned, acidity uh, is high, and cells are trying to survive. And that may be a place where selection happens. And dominant clones will, will come out of those selective pressures, right? But definitely inside a tumor becomes necrotic and cells die. Tumor cells die. A lot of them. Okay. What about primary tumor versus metastases? Do you think there's a cell-to-cell signaling, coordination of action, sharing of information, those kinds of things? You mean between the primary tumor and metastasis? Yes. So the work, yeah. So there is some data. It is not great. So between a tumor, a a metastatic tumor and a tissue where it's planted in, there is definitely a coordination, a conversation have had. If the primary tumor is still driving or steering the metastatic site, well, not sure, probably not, because there are times, there are multiple times that we see the metastatic site without the existence of the primary site. Like there are instances where you find the tumor and you say, well, this tumor is metastatic. Where's the primary tumor? And you cannot find it. So the primary tumor is probably was there and died and went away, but the metastasis lived on. There are instances like, like that. So yeah, so I would say uh, a metastasis can function on its, on its own. It's not. I didn't realize that. And there are, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting thing that we, we sometimes say that, yeah, the tumor, you may have had a tumor 10, 10 years ago, nothing happened, it just died, but it metastasized. And then in a site outside, we uh, find a tumor that is, is obviously metastatic, but the primary tumor is gone. Do you know any, um, is there a place where, um, you know, cancer researchers can request tissue from autopsies? Like, let's say you, you, you know, you had a connection with, I don't know, however, you know, 50 morgues across the U.S. And you said, hey, when you when you do uh, autopsies, can you get permission to um, to save me some of the lung tissue and look for tumors that, you know, again, the person didn't die of cancer, but maybe they have small microtumors. And maybe you get some insight onto what they look like at an early point in development. Well, that's an idea. This kind of thing 
happens in, at autopsy that happens. I mean, if a, if a patient gives the, the permission for, for autopsy, then, and if you have the IRB for it, you can get the tissue. We have an IRB here for, for this is not postmortem for people who have long resection. They have resection of their tumors and we get tissue and we, and we study them. We get tissue from that, but that's based on IRB patient has, has agreed to that. Post more than uh, we haven't done much. It gets harder. Most, most patients and families do not go for that. And I wish they would more because it is, it's, a, it's a different picture. So most of the tumors that, that we have are not advanced. They are patients, they're tumors who were resectable. But uh, yeah, advanced tumor can be different. But yeah, in, when a patient uh, dies in the hospital, if they, if they give the permission, we ask them later. If they give the, per- the permission for autopsy, then uh, we get those, those samples. And if you have the IRB, you can, you can study, uh, look at the, the tumors and how they go. Now, if the picture that you get post-mortem after death, if that is a complete or correct copy of or index of, of how the tumor was functioning during life, that's a different question, right? Because a lot of cells may die during that transition from life to death or may change during that. So, you know, there's absolutely value to it. A lot of research has been done in history of, of, of medicine on samples like, like that. But if you can, you want a, an image of advanced tumors while the patient is alive. But what we did in our work is through our collaboration with uh, with interventional pul- pulmonology here at Yale, we got some samples from bronchoscopies. So there are people who have large tumors. These tumors cannot be resected. But with bronchoscopy, you can get a small sample. And those samples we uh, received and we, uh, we did research on. Again, patients agreed. They were, all, they were okay with us looking at it uh, from a biological uh, pers- perspective. So we have that. And... Uh, that's not many, maybe 30 patients, 30, 35, 40 patients, but we are definitely going to, to work on that more uh, through our collaboration to look at the, the advanced stage uh, cancer, lung, lung cancer. What's been observed from these, uh, these biopsies? So, yeah, so we were looking at, a, at an endothelial signal, and we saw a very similar signal, maybe... Uh, a little bit more. So in, in our case, we saw that there was, the response is similar, but the intensity was higher. The magnitude of the signal was higher. We, were, we, we are specifically looking right now and working on this whole concept that uh, we, called, we call uh, field cancer, cancerization or can, cancerization in general which means in an area of the lung or a tissue, the chances of occurrence of cancer will go up. The tissue is cancerized, per se. So, uh, yeah, so uh, I am looking at these changes. And I, I, again, I'm looking at endothelial cells, of course, that have been exposed to smoke or other factors. And if they are cancerized, meaning that the chance of cancer is going to go up and we could get that signal in advanced tumors, and we could get it in less advanced tumors, right? It's just the magnitude seemed to be a little higher in advanced tumors. So, I mean, like for instance, angiogenic signaling, right? That's a huge thing. Angiogenic signaling in advanced tumor is 
the magnitude is higher. There are more vessels. Um, so far, I don't know of some of something that is like the opposite, for instance, or it's unlike the tumor in the stage two. You know, it seems like it's more it's more advanced. Has anyone um, tried to make a 3D model of a given tumor? Meaning, uh, they look at all the uh, you know the genetic mutations or epigenetic changes spatially, 3D in a tumor from inside to out. I don't know of such a thing, and I don't know if it will be possible because one of the features of tumor is this randomness, lack of organization. Well, it's not totally random. I mean, you know, if you, uh, I mean, there's got to be. I mean, if it hasn't been looked at, then how do they know it's random? Maybe they would see some underlying because, structure. Because you look at pathology, right? You look at many, many tumors. And it is basically like the cells have been thrown out there. There are areas of cell death. There is this heterogeneity all over. Now, if, the, if that's part of a higher structure that we don't recognize, possible. But, I mean, that is one of the main problems that a tumor has, a, a basic problem. That's why, that's why tumor cells die, because the organization is not there, because the, the tissue organization that, that has to bring vas- vasculature first um, is not there. So then some cells will die. Now, as I said, is it that there is a, there's a higher order structure that we haven't recognized yet? I can just tell you that a lot of people haven't rec- rec- recognized it yet. The main comparison that comes out of it, it's a tumor is a tumor, is a, is a bunch of cells uh, without order. And they just grow and they cannot divide pro- properly. They have large I mean, they have different sizes size of cytoplasm and nuclei, and it's just this randomness. The, the thing that is common to tumor cells is randomness, is change so in every so way. So when you say heterogeneity, it's heterogeneity of cell size, of genetic material, of epigenetic marks, of everything, membrane structures. I mean, is that what you're saying? Yes, all of the, the above. The only thing I want to add is the clonal nature of it. So meaning that you get a lot of cells that look similar, but then you suppress one clone, another clone will, will come up. You suppress that, a third clone will, will come up. So there are multi-clone, there are multiple clones. There can be multiple clones within one, one tumor, right? Okay. But you were talking about the tissue structure and organizational st- structure of these cells. Right. That organizational structure, that is not seen. But cells are clonal. They're just growing. Like like we, they're just grown. Well, what what makes the tumor successful versus not? What's been observed there? Yeah, so part of it is inside this the cell. As we started, like what is the response? What is the response that has been selected out of all the the interactions, the fight that a tumor cell has with immune cells and it, with its environment? One is that, and I think part of that, part of that, or maybe part of that is how the cells around are responding, accepting or not accepting this rowdy cell, right? For instance, we know that certain types, like for instance, if a lung is injured, we know that cells, in, it's not just epithelial cells, endothelial cells also, immune cells also, they change. They, they, we call it remodeling, like they remodel. And part of this remodeling is that they may be more accepting to errors, right? 
Okay. So, for instance, the we we can imagine that there are these pockets, these pockets that are that immune cells are not functioning pro- properly. They don't. They may not have access. There may be fibrosis, for instance, limiting the access, or there may be a change of code, as we know now about PD one, that the code for recognition, the code for 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 evolvement of immune cells and activation of immune cells, that has been disturbed. And these seem to happen in that context. Now, are there there genetic and epigenetic markers that can tell us which patient is more more accepting, has higher tolerance for a tumor cell? That is part of what I do. And a lot of people are trying to do that. That, like specifically, for instance, one of the things that we are working on just recently, are there patients whose endothelial cells are more responsive to cytokines, to growth cytokines specifically? If you look at two people and one of them, their vessels respond twice as much to vascular endothelial growth factor, for, for instance. We know that one of the tricks that tumor cells do is secreting this cytokine, vascular endothelial growth factor, one of the most famous cytokines ever recognized for a tumor. So if you are more responsive to VEGF, to this growth factor, right, it's very, it's it's easily imaginable that now if a tumor evolves and has, is secreting VEGF, you will send more vessels around it. It's, It's very easy to imagine that that tumor can fall into the bloodstream and go and metastasize much easier, right? And that higher responsiveness, that can be genetic, there are people who have higher VEGF receptors. Okay. It can be epigenetic. We know that certain events in your life would make your VEGF pathway more responsive, right? right. Okay. Or it can be a product of other cytokines that increase the, uh, the activity of the VEGF pathway. I personally think that, that the most efficient ways to fight cancer will not be against the cancer cell itself. I think it will be against the helpers, those little helpers, immune cells, mesenchymal cells, things that are around, immune, you know, the, the endothelial cells, those that accept. So it's not maybe, maybe a sociological um, a model is a dictator, right? A dictator is not a dictator by himself. There are a lot of people who facilitate those right, dictators. Right, right. I think we should get those facilitators because they still abide by some law. They still go with some pattern, and we may be able to understand that pattern and, and stop it. Okay, interesting. Well, Saeed, we're, we're, we're out of time for right now, Shervin. Um, what, what's That's the best right. way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? I have my, my website at Yale has some information about the work we do, some about cancer and some about the, I mean, as, as we talked before, was about asthma. So all of them, more about the endothelium and the the work we are doing doing in cancer we are published and we have a new paper coming out pretty soon um those are mostly it um, we are thinking about putting out more things for the public uh, to bring attention to effects of all the risk risk factors how to um how to deal with that but that is not ready yet right now it's just my my lab website on at yale okay well very good well Sherman, thank you for coming back i really appreciate it Sure. Thank you for for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.